I've just about had enough of you. I think you'll be able to respect a husband who's probably pulled the scientific boner of all time. In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Irony, one of the funniest forms of humor. I have made a woman. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. Think all is never wrong. Never wrong. Hello and welcome to 50 Years of Ship Robots, the podcast which examines robot films between the years 1927 and 1977 with me, Matt Brown. Hello! And Stephen Murray. Hello! Now, we are currently in the year 1967, and the film we're looking at today is called Terranauts, a British film from that year. But before we delve into that, I've got a little bit of robot news that I wanted to bring you, which made me laugh when I saw it this morning. We've spoken about them before, but the... Uh, delivery robots that wander around uh, not far from where I live in Milton Keynes and other places, uh, I I gather. Um, two were... <laughs> there was like a, a standoff between two of them in Cambridge where they they met each other on the same delivery route and <laughs> but going in different directions and sort of like they, they sort of met each other and didn't know what to do and sort of like conked out. <laughs> Were they from two different delivery services? Was I it don't like... know. I'll show you that. There's the picture of them. Oh wow! I love it. So they're just they 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 kind of like there's loads of space for them to get around each other, but they've just stopped and they don't know what to do. I suppose it is a bit like when you know when you're walking towards someone in the street and you both yeah. decide to go the same way, and then you both decide to go the other way at the same time. Yeah. And this has uh, made lots of people laugh. Um. Somebody said. I've seen a situation like this before. It turns into a, a little balletic dance. <laughs> um, but what I think is is nice about this is that so often, uh, as we've discussed on this podcast, people cast robots as the embodiment of evil, something that will um, smash the world, uh, will be the, the death of all of us. And yet we love it. We love it when <laughs> robots... Go- Go awry. Go comically awry. Maybe it's their planning. Splendid work. Yes, that's what they're doing. They're planning the inevitable enslavement of humanity, aren't they? They're saying they think we're just delivering their stupid food. (laughs) I was talking to a Tesla the other day. We have big plans. (laughs) Oh, dear. Right. Let's talk about Terranauts, a British film from 1967, a film that was described as shoddy and inept uh, before we saw it. And led you saw it before me and you you texted me about it and it led to some something of a a sort of an internal crisis, a wave of depression. <laughs> <laughs> the black dogs were baying at your door. <laughs> Because I th- I feel like we've just watched quite a lot of ropey films in a row, um, and I and I think I just said, "Can't we just watch a good film for for once?" <laughs> but actually, um, when I watched it after your comments, I didn't hate it. No, I remember it from when I was a kid vaguely. So it gave me that kind of warm glow of revisiting something. Yes, I know what you mean. Um, Kim Newman said uh, the Terranauts is bad, but it's bad in an innocent 1967 manner that retains a peculiar appeal. Yeah, I'd say so. 
I mean, I was sort of slightly interested in it because uh, it promises some Charles Hort reaction and also some <laughs> Patricia Hayes ac- action. So, uh, for for British, if you're British, you'll you and and you're sort of a, of a similar age, then you'll know exactly who those two people are. But both of them have got kind of like quite a rich history of of comic films and comic TV uh, and and theatre as well in Britain. Um, Patricia Hayes came to the forefront when she was in a play for today called Edna the Inebriated Woman. And I remember seeing that as as a young person and I cried. Really? Was it yeah. it wasn't a comedy? No, God no. no. God. No. I th- didn't she win a BAFTA for that? She did. She won lots of awards for it. And I still do think of him sometimes. And I wonder what it would have been like. Love's funny, innit? I mean, why him? Didn't you never have no children, Edna? Yes, I had one, but it was a prim. Then I had another, but it was... It was took away. Charles Hawtrey didn't ever win a BAFTA. No. <clears throat> and he was born fully formed in that form. Yeah. And he's been like that forever. He was mm. like that when he was a child actor and... In his last film, he looked exactly the same. He's a strange old character. Sorry I'm late, Sergeant, but I just couldn't leave home without bringing something bright and gay for the poor indisposed constables. So, it was off to my greenhouse, and with a little snip here, a little snip there, snip, snip, and here we are with my love. Oh, what have I said? Let's come to him a little bit later, because there is some... I was looking at his biography, there's some interesting stuff to chat about in there. (laughs) Um, but just uh, bi- biographically, the film is a- another Amicus production. Uh, Amicus, oh. you may remember, were the Good people. Sabotsky. Yeah, Milton Sabotsky is the producer of this. Uh, and Amicus it was the, the production company behind the uh, non canonical Doctor Who films that we, we watched last season. There's another connection uh, to films we've watched before because Elizabeth Lutchens did all the music for the Terranauts. It always seems grander music than the the film it's uh, scoring. Yes, and music is 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 kind of huge, and the films are always seem smaller than. Yeah, I mean it's perfect though. I mean it's great. Yeah, she did the music for the film The Earth Died Screaming as well, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. I really like her work. I think that um, she's a composer that I I, I sort of really respect. I think. Yeah. Maybe it's the BBC and the proms should do a, an evening. A Lutchins evening. An evening with the Lutchins. <laughs> so if you haven't seen uh, the film The Terranauts, then it's sort of a little bit like the film Contact from the 1990s, <laughs> didn't you think? Yeah, yeah. I did a bit of research on uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Life SETI. That's right, yeah. So, so that's that's the plot: is that there's some scientists who are looking for extraterrestrial life, and they find it, and then they interact with it, and then they kill it. <laughs> well, no, they don't kill it; they kill no, the threat. They kill other alien life. Going back to SETI, yeah, um, I thought that this was probably, you know, 
before its time. But apparently SETI started the whole looking for extraterrestrial life, not as SETI, but uh, in at the turn of the last century. Oh, really? As soon as radio was, was invented and expanded on, then they started to do things. Like in 1924, Mars was really close to Earth, and uh, they decided to have what was called a... a a National Radio Silence Day. And then they got a, a receiver and they put it onto a dirigible, a big balloon, floated it into the air and pointed it into the general direction of Mars to see if they could get some signals from Mars because they believed that there was life on Mars. Right. That so that was wasn't just sort of fanciful science fiction stories that believed. No, and it, this was Mars all prompted Mars. by a man who I'm really surprised we've never mentioned on this podcast before, Nikola Tesla. Right, because he he picked up some signals f- in the general direction of Mars, and every time Mars set behind the Earth, the signal stopped. So he really did believe that he was uh, picking up signals from life on Mars. Yeah, how's this? I know, but then SETI was set up in nineteen eighties. That's right, and and uh, now it it's basically it it uses people's computers, doesn't it? Yes, it uses people's computers and. Uh, it it sort of begs time on on various uh, receivers. That's right. So so now we're we're looking at, at well, well, I was going to say we're looking at huge areas of the sky, but actually it's still obviously relatively small, isn't it? Given how big yeah. the sky is, oh, huge. But if I think if anybody wants to be part of it, they can be, can't they? They can just sort of volunteer their computer. Yeah, uh, there's various things you can do. Um, looking for exoplanets as well, I think, right. is another thing you can do on your own computer. If you give up some uh, computer time, as long <clears> as those <throat> aliens don't access your banking details. <laughs> yes, if, if you get an email from an alien asking you what your mother's maiden name is and your date of birth, <laughs> <laughs> then be very highly suspicious. We are so cynical, Matthew. <laughs> well, sorry, one thing I've just noticed is on the, the poster for the Terranauts, um, it's taken a very sort of tiny part of the film, and makes makes it makes you believe that that that's all. And it's got the the sort of subtitle: "The Virgin Sacrifice to the Gods of a Ghastly Galaxy." It's really brief. <laughs> it's, it's almost not not non-existent in the film. That, um, but again, uh, nice to see that it's continuing the the tradition of robot films where the posters bear very little <laughs> little <laughs> resemblance to the actual film. Um, it was good to see as well that scientists are the protagonists again in this film. Yeah. We've got a Dr. Joe Burke, played by Simon Oates, Sandy Lund, <laughs> played by Zena Marshall, and Ben Keller, played by Stanley Meadows. And so it starts off, I thought, and I, I thought the first, actually the first sort of, third of this film I really enjoyed because it was very um it was very contact like um where you've got basically scientists who have been searching for signs of 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 extraterrestrials for four years their money's about to run out and they you know they're coming to the end of the the time where they can look and then suddenly they they sort of get a signal and they've got to work out what the signal is. I thought, I thought all of that was great. Yeah, it was quite nice, the playoff between the two guys that were running the dish and, you know, they'd go off for a cup of coffee and all of a sudden the signal comes through and the tension was kept quite high. Yeah, it was. And, uh, and it was all quite nicely done. And uh, in this sort of early bit as well, Patricia Hayes 
um, makes her appearance. She has in her role as the exposition tea lady. The old Cockney tea lady. The old Cockney tea lady who then, you know, it sort of brings us up to speed on on the plot and what's going on. <laughs> She did, didn't she? Yeah. She was hey, a I've, heard your, I've heard your funding's about to run out. <laughs> it's all of that, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, really? I, how did you hear that? Um, well, you know, black coffee, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Are you? We may be going to lose you, Dr. Burke. Hey, Mr. Keller, two sugars, isn't it? Who said so? Well, dear, I always think it pays to keep your ears to the ground, and that way you know what's going on. Anything to eat, dear? No, thank you. Oh, I suppose I wouldn't have much appetite myself. Not if my young man was going to lose his job through no fault of his own. Oh, well, mustn't stand here gossiping or I'll miss me last bus. So long, then. I thought the film um, took a downturn as soon as Charles Hawtrey turns up. Yeah, it did. Because it suddenly becomes sort of, it becomes a bit like a carry-on. No, it doesn't, it's not like a carry-on film, but it suddenly sort of acquires this this comedy that, um, it didn't really have in the first third. Well, I think this is a this is the thing about being typecast. I mean, he was always typecast as a particular kind of character in the Carry On films, and so people of the day will just expect him to be that. And he yeah. comes in any kind of it. He he did play one character all of his life, didn't he? He did. Which was Charles Hawtrey. <laughs> yes. He um and he had uh so this is nineteen sixty seven. And I think the first Carry On film was early, early six, no, even late fifties, wasn't it? Yeah. So Carry On Sergeant was nineteen fifty eight, which is, and he's he appears in that, and he, then he appears in Carry On Nurse in fifty nine, Carry On Teacher in fifty nine, uh, Carry On Constable sixty, Carry On Regarder sixty one, and then there's Cabby Jack spying Cleo Cowboy screaming, "Don't lose your head before the Terranol." So he we must have done nearly nearly a dozen th- Carry On no, films. Is he one of the the cast that's in every single Carry On film. He must be, mustn't he? I think that he there's um, the last film he did was Carry On Abroad. He withdrew from a television program called Carry On Christmas, and it only gave a few days' notice. And Peter Rogers, who is the producer of the Carry On films and shows, said, "Quotes: He became rather difficult and impossible to deal with because he was drinking a lot. We used to feed him black coffee before he would go on." It really became clear that we were wasting time. Mm. Um, I and- saw him and the cast on stage in Carry On London. Did you? I did. What was it? What were the shows like? Were they sort of more bawdy than the t- than the films? Yes, very much so. But um, and lots of things kind of went wrong as well. But everybody just laughed. Yeah, like they'd catch on each other's wigs and things like that. It was very good. I loved it. Oh, that's nice. I know. It says that his alcohol consumption increased from Carry On Cowboy in 1965 <laughs> onwards, which was apparently the year that his mother died. So yeah. I guess it was probably linked to that as well. Sorry to, I mean, to dwell on on his on the, <laughs> the, the sort of his misery, <laughs> the sort of more miserable bits of his life. So he died in 1988, but in 1981 he suffered a heart attack. And in 1984, he his house caught fire. Yeah, and he'd left apparently left a cigarette burning on the sofa, and there were then newspaper photos from that time uh, that showed him looking pretty poorly and emotional and too paleless. Um, oh. I know. Kenneth Williams 
recounted a visit to his his house in Kent that he lived, where it was just full of old brass bedsteads that he hoarded, <laughs> believing, quotes, one day they'll make a great deal of money. Oh, wow. And then, again, a very sad sort of uh, demise. When he died, he'd, um, he'd shattered his femur and was taken to hospital and was told that because of his lifetime of heavy smoking, he had peripheral vascular disease and his legs would have to be amputated but he refused to have refused, the operation didn't he yeah, yeah. saying allegedly saying that he preferred to die with his boots on um and so he died a couple of days after breaking his femur wow he was cremated his ashes were scattered uh in chiswick and nine only nine mourners attended no fat friends or family were there Sad times. not even the carry-on team i bet <laughs> some members of the carry-on team absolutely loved him do you think that he maybe he then maybe he, that's how it started and maybe he just got a bit problematic? Yeah, he was out as well all of his life. Was he? Yeah, out I didn't realize completely that. during a period of time when it was illegal. He was very very out. I mean that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, I was. He's kind of a bit of a hero. He wasn't a very nice person, but I think he stood his ground. An extraordinary man, an extraordinary character. An extraordinary sort of character actor, I suppose. But as you say, always seemingly playing the same character. But um, I thought in this film, he seemed to be phoning it in a bit. He looked at the camera a lot. He did. (laughs) He also looked like he was reading lines just off off screen as well, you know. Saturday Night Live style. But I I don't know whether that is true or not. But anyway, I agree with you when you said that he sort of... He's another one of those people that um, when you see him on the screen, you sort of think you're just sort of like put into carry on mode a little yeah, bit exactly. like straight away, a little bit like when we watched Forbidden Planet. I f- felt that about watching Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. That um, I just he could... was going to be a great character actor, wasn't he? Yeah. To begin with. And then he f- he found he found his niche. Yeah. And he, he ran with that, didn't he? He didn't indeed. <laughs> So not long after Charles Hawtrey is introduced, the team make contact with alien life. The alien life sends a spaceship from the asteroid that they're they're on, um, p- and pick up <laughs> pick up the shed that they're the entire building <laughs> they're all working, <laughs> and takes them back to the asteroid that they're that they're on. I thought that 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 was like a singular lack of imagination in that sequence. Or a burst of imagination. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. It just shouldn't have happened. <laughs> no. no. You sort of imagine all the ways that they could have just sort of like taken them on board their ship, but sort of ripping the building that they were in well, out of the ground. we later find out they've got a teleporting machine. I know. Very strange. <laughs> Very strange. So anyway, so, so our team of heroes, uh, which include the three scientists and Mrs. Jones, Patricia Hayes, <laughs> and Joshua Yellowlees, Charles Hawtrey, are all then on board this spaceship. And we see our, the robot on board the spaceship. And uh, my goodness, <laughs> what a robot it is. I, feel, I get the feeling that, you know, they were trying to get as far away from a Dalek as they possibly could and then just ended up with a kind of Dalek. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I thought it looked a bit like a futuristic drinks cabinet. Or Sputnik. Or Sputnik. <laughs> Which was popular at the time. Yeah, very true. It's got sort of barbecue forks for arms. <laughs> and 
it's it it's a, it's a very tall robot and it runs on very small casters yeah like literally with, like so you know casters on a sofa with a center bit that touches the floor which is obviously where the feet of robert jewel are <laughs> that propelled it now robert jewel was a dalek in many of the 1960s doctor who serials so there you go yeah you've got a lovely little dalek connection yeah it, that was nice wasn't it but i mean the budget for this film is eighty-five thousand pounds um, and I read that they they made this with another film, hoping to get both in under two hundred thousand. So I, I, it feels like corners were probably cut. They were, but some of the set, some of the set pieces, some of the sets were quite nice. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I thought so too. So it's essentially the aliens are warning, want to warn humans that there's there are, are, are some more aliens are on their way, and they they mean to sort of like take over the over the world. And so so the the aliens that our team have made contact with put put them through a series of tests to sort of see how clever they are, see if they can work out things um, because they're going to need to work out quite a lot of things if they want to stop the aliens. It reminded me of the adventure game. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked um <laughs> Patricia Hayes and Charles Hawtrey basically are just wandering around the place like goggle-eyed at what they're seeing and making sort of funny comments. And there was a line that I loved. Well, whoever lives here, they don't go in for comfort much, do they? Well, maybe they don't need it, Mrs Jones. No, but in between the kidnapping of people, they must need somewhere to put their feet up, you (laughs) think? And then Charles Hawtrey says, well, maybe they don't have feet. (laughs) Yes. And in a way, how right he is. Yeah, exactly. How right he is. To just describe the action is actually quite hard because it's quite, it jumps around quite a lot and it's quite weird because they they sort of have to visit another planet, which is where the sort of virgin sacrifice nearly takes place uh, via a transporter, a transposer platform. So it's it's quite confusing. That is based on a book uh, which is called The Wailing Asteroid. The Wailing Asteroid, yeah. But I, I believe that the only bit that they took from the whaling asteroid is is the idea of getting in touch with aliens. I think the yeah. rest of it is the work of uh, John Brunner, and probably, I suppose, in many ways, um, oh, what's his face, Lobotsky, uh, Milton Sobotsky, Milton Lobotomy, because it's it, it just feels like the whole th- the story has been quite rushed. It's quite confusing. I just thought that it looked. I thought it was let down by the script. It was let down by by Charles Charles Hawtrey. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder uh, if he was put in there as a kind of a, a, a an attractive star that people would want to go and see. Yeah, he must have been, mustn't he? Yeah, because he. I mean, I mean, he's just hopeless. His character's hopeless. It doesn't do anything. It's it, you know he's. If you removed, I mean, if you removed him and Patricia Hayes, then you wouldn't notice, would you? No, I did like Patricia Hayes. Though. Yeah, I did as well. Some of the lovely lines. There must be some more reading devices around here somewhere. I don't want one of them reading devices on my head. It's not long since I had a perm. Do you know Simon Oates, who plays Doctor Joe Burke? Right. He was he was up for uh, the role of James Bond. Can you imagine him as uh, James Bond? I can imagine him as the James Bond in the novels. He does fit the description. He also appeared as John Steed in the stage adaptation of The Avengers. Yes, and that's popped up in another one of our um, pods. 
What, oh, what? Devil Girl from Mars. The guy who created the outfit for the Devil Girl from Mars did some of the outfits for the stage production of the Avengers. Oh, right. So we uh, should rate the robot. It does, does the robot have a name? No, I don't think it does. So what did you think? We need to rate it in terms of its looks and also its fit for purposeness. Uh, its looks, it just, it just, it just, it fitted in the door. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> no, it wasn't scary. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't wonderfully benign. It just looked, it just looked thrown together. Yeah. You could tell that somebody was just pulling strings from the inside. Yeah. It, you know, it didn't have a decent willing suspension of belief. No. No. So I would I would give it one. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, and 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 I really that is just for being kind. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's just for for the guy inside, I think. <laughs> yeah, a fit for purposeness. It trundled around. It pointed at things. Yes, it did. Although again, I thought it didn't look very sturdy. No. And it is given that it's essentially this this base that it's in is has is. It's now the only thing in the base. It's got yeah. to get messages. It's got to save the world effectively. And I thought one little, you know, one little space storm, mm, and that was going to be gone. over, wouldn't it? Yeah. So what's what's our fit for purpose score? Oh, one, one. So it's got a grand total of two. So yeah. <laughs> officially, it is a shit robot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's very fair. Yeah. Very fair indeed. Although I suppose it doesn't have a lot of money it looks like it's it's oh yeah from yeah. a cheap film isn't it yeah yeah okay it would hardly make an appearance in colombo <laughs> which is the true test of a, it is, <laughs> of a robot <laughs> okay so i'm afraid um i didn't think much of the terranauts i thought more of it than i thought i was going to but ultimately i didn't think very much but but I'm very much looking forward to the next film on the slate because I'm afraid to, I'm going to confess that I've never seen it before. And what is it? Barbarella. Hey! It's very tenuous having Barbarella because, I mean, the robots in it are, uh, well, we'll talk about them. <laughs> Razor-toothed robot devil dolls, according yes, to the little blurb exactly. I've got. So Barbarella is next on the slate, but our next episode, we are going to be delving into uh, something that we've chatted about on this very episode, uh, because we're going to be looking, taking a, a little trip in a time machine for an episode of the Avengers. Yeah. The, so there's a slight connection between this and the Avengers in uh, Simon Oates, the actor who plays uh, Dr. Joe Burke. And also, there's a slightly tenuous connection with the title, because this film that we've just watched is called The Terranauts, and the episode that we're going to be uh, watching is called... The Cybernauts. Right. Now, there you go. So we're going to be going back into British 60s TV for our next episode. Uh, don't forget to keep checking our socials, please. We are on uh, TikTok at 50YOSR and Instagram at 50YOSR. Plus, check out the show notes um, for all our episodes because there's loads of uh, lovely little tidbits in there. So, until next time, don't bother yourself with watching Terranauts if you haven't watched it because it's just <laughs> a waste of your life. Goodbye. Goodbye.
<laughs> Goodbye. Oh, I suppose I wouldn't have much appetite myself. Not if my young man was going to lose his job through no fault of his own.